This episode is a placeholder. I didn't post any text episodes of the personal history from Monday, August 16th through Friday, August 20th, while I was preparing the podcast launch. The text episodes that I posted on those days were placeholders, counting down the days until the podcast launch on Monday, August 23rd. To keep the numbering of podcast episodes consistent with the numbering of text episodes, I'm posting five podcast placeholders, episodes 68 through 72, from Wednesday, November 17th through Tuesday, November 23rd. My reading of the personal history will resume with podcast episode 73 on Wednesday, November 24th. To entertain you during this interval, I'm posting a reading of a portion of The Fox and the Clam by Bill Kavnis on his program, Reading Aloud, broadcast on WGBH in Boston in 1982 or 1983. Here it is. Welcome to Reading Aloud, a series presented as our recognition of an old family custom. As our regular listeners will remember, a few months back on this Reading Aloud series, we presented Volume 1 of The Personal History, Adventures, Experiences, and Observations of Peter Leroy, a serial novel by Eric Kraft, published beginning 1983 by Applewood Books of Cambridge and Watertown. And, logically enough, it's time now for Volume 2. This will be actually Part 5 of the greater work, Peter Leroy. We've read the first four segments to begin with. And Part 2, The Fox and the Clam, begins with a dedication, quoting, Nothing is miserable except when you think it's so, and vice versa. All luck is good luck to the man who bears it with equanimity. No one is so happy that he would not want to change his lot if he gives in to impatience. Such is the bitter sweetness of human happiness. To him that enjoys it, it may seem full of delight, but he cannot prevent it slipping away when it will. It is evident, therefore, how miserable the happiness of human life is. Anicius Manius Severinus Berthius, The Consolation of Philosophy in the Translation of E. E. Watts. Dedication for Mad. Preface. The Fox and the Clam began life as a story that I told Porky White, the fast-food clam bar mogul. One stormy spring afternoon, while we were bailing a leaky clam boat in the middle of Bolotomy Bay. But one could say that it was conceived in a conversation with Porgy the evening before, when Al and Rascal and I dropped in at Corinne's fabulous fruits of the sea. 
A couple of months before that evening, Albertine had decided that she could attract more vacationing families, honeymooners, young lovers, and adulterers to Small's Island if she had a cozy cottage or two to offer them, set apart from the hotel itself, where they could feel quite sure that no one would blunder into their moonlight trysting. Al found an appropriate cottage for sale on the mainland at a good price, and she and Raskolnikov worked out a plan for moving it to the island on a platform constructed atop four clam boats. In the weeks that followed, Al was extremely busy. She negotiated for and purchased the cottage. She solicited bids on moving it to the island, and she chose an outfit called Three Jolly Tinkers to do the work. Their advertisement in the Babington Reporter, quote, we'll do anything to the best of our ability, unquote, had caught Al's eye, and their bid was by far the lowest. They were three former school teachers who distinguished themselves from other jolly tinkers, and most other former school teachers, by wearing derby hats on the job. Al took to them at once. They moved the cottage to Ruskell's boatyard and constructed the platform. On the evening when we ran into Porky White at Corinne's, the three of us were excited, even bubbly. The cottage was sitting on the platform, and the voyage to the island would begin the next morning. Porky, however, was down in the dumps. He was sitting alone, wearing a long face. He had a platter of onion rings in front of him and a glass of beer in his hand. Porky, cried Al. She threw her arms around his neck and gave him an extravagant kiss. Why the long puss? she asked. Porky didn't answer. He just frowned and shook his head and stuffed a couple of onion rings into his mouth. Al sat down beside him and snuggled up to him. She turned his face toward her. Tell me about it, Porky, she said. Porky took a swallow of beer and ate another onion ring before he spoke. Well, he said, it's like this. He wiped his mouth with a napkin and cleared his throat. I suppose <clears throat> it happens to all of us from time to time. We feel utterly miserable for no clear or sufficient reason. You know what I mean? Even those of us who think of ourselves as essentially happy people find that our essential happiness is at these times in danger of drowning, as it were, in a sea of misery. Al, Roscoe, and I looked at one another. Roscoe went up to the bar to get us some drinks. Most often, Porky went on, the misery, almost despair, is brought on not by a tragedy, but by an accumulation of small problems. I think it's the smallness of these problems that makes them so deadly, because if you think about it, you'll realize that our lives are full of small things that could go wrong, and when one of them does go wrong, we're suddenly threatened with the collapse of the whole tinker-toy framework of our lives. You get me? When the freezer breaks down in one of my Cap'n Clam family restaurants today, it makes me think that there's a good chance that the freezers and all the rest of them will break down tomorrow. Happiness is a fragile commodity, kids. 
You get a little crack in it, and the next thing you know, you're picking up little pieces of it all over the floor. Porky went back to work on the onion rings. Al gave me a worried look. Porky wiped his mouth again and went on. At such times as that, <clears throat> when a little crack shows up in my essential happiness, he said, I respond very badly. I try to resist the despair, and I try hard. I use all the right arguments with myself, and I actually work at fighting the despair, but little by little my strength slips away. It's like trying to row a boat across the bay into a fierce headwind. Can you get that picture in your mind? I'm in this rowboat, and I'm roaring, rowing like blazes, but I'm not getting anywhere. The rain is lashing against my back. The wind is stronger than I am. I'm getting more and more tired. The boat is filling with rainwater. In fact, I think it's starting to leak. I know what I should do. Press on, Porky, press on. But I ask myself, why? Why go to any more trouble? I stop rowing. I sit there, exhausted, miserable, leaving myself at the mercy of the wind and the rain. I reached for one of Porky's onion rings, but Al slapped my hand. In a perverse way, Porky continued, I enjoy these periods of misery. I think I enjoy them because they give depth and texture to my life, to my character, you know? I wouldn't want to be happy all the time to have people pass me off as one of the grasshoppers rather than one of the ants. Periods of brooding, it seems to me, show that I'm serious, that I'm sensitive to the pain of modern life, and that I'm not unaware of how fragile the fabric of a happy life is. Porky sat in silence for a moment. Neither Al nor Rascal nor I knew what to say. Finally, Porky spoke. Hey, Shirley, he called out. How about another beer and some more onion rings? The next day at noon, Porky and I were standing on the front porch of the cottage. We were about in the middle of Bellotomy Bay, pushing into a headwind, a driving rain, and a nasty chop. Al had suggested that Porky join us in the Trans Bay voyage because she had thought that it would cheer him up. The two clam boats on the port side, the kitten's paw and the means to an end, were taking on water, and the engine in the Alice Blue Gown had quit. The three jolly tinkers were bustling around the platform, checking the lines that held the cottage in place, clucking their tongues and looking gravely concerned. I was eating a tuna fish sandwich and worrying about whether we'd make it to the island. Al opened the door to the porch. It got away from her, but she caught it again and threw herself inside. Jeez, this is rotten weather, said Porky. Yeah, you said it, I said. It's not the rain and cold that I mind so much as the wind, Al said. Listen, Roscoe says we've all got to start bailing or we're not going to make it to the island. 
We scrambled down to the kitten's paw to start bailing. On the way, Al stopped Porky for a moment and made him take a good look at one of the clam boats nearby, on which Serge de Nîmes stood in the rain and wind, clawing at the bay bottom with his tongs. Now, there's something that should cheer you up, Porky, she said. You ought to be glad that you're not one of those guys out here all day in all kinds of weather. Porky didn't say anything, but I could see that he was thinking, deciding whether the fact that he wasn't Serge or any of the other clammies ought to cheer him up. When the three of us were bent over in the kitten's paw, bailing like mad, he spoke. You know, I'm not so sure that I wouldn't be happier as a clammy, said Porky. It's not an easy life, I grant you, but it, it has more of an aura of romance about it than being a giant in the fast food industry does. You know what I mean? I mean, sure, they're out here in some rotten weather, but after their day's work is done, they gather in the bar along the docks somewhere and tell stories about their close calls on the unforgiving bay, embellish the tales of the legendary clammies and that kind of thing. It's like living in a beer commercial. It seems exciting to me. Well, that's true, admitted Al. Porky went on. And I guess they all must have the feeling that someday, after they're gone, other clammies, their sons and the sons of their friends and their sons' sons and their friends' sons' sons, will tell stories about them, that they won't be forgotten, that they might become legends themselves, you know? He stopped bailing for a minute and rubbed his hands together. I can just see my kid telling stories about me when I'm gone, he said. A thrill ran through me, the electrifying thrill that comes from recognizing a theme in a setting where one doesn't expect to find it. This is like the fox and the clam, I said. Oh, yeah? said Porky. Yeah, I said. Keep bailing and I'll tell you the story. I told Porky the story that appears on the following pages. It kept him bailing, and we got the island, to the cottage to the island safely. When I had finished the story, Porky smiled and pounded me on the back. Thanks, Peter, he said. I guess I'm just a sucker for a happy ending. I began writing the story down the next morning. I think that I might have been able to complete it very quickly if I hadn't tried to verify some of the facts. When I did, I found, to my surprise, that I had made up two essential ingredients. As part of the story as I told it to Porky White, I had included the version of the fable of the fox and the clam that I remembered from the first real book that I owned, The Little Folk's Big Book. Before I began writing, I went downstairs to the library to see how accurately I had remembered the fable. When I opened the big book, I was surprised to find that the fable of the fox and the clam was not in it. I had been certain that I had first encountered it there. I had read and reread the big book so often as a child that I could recite most of the stories in it. 
and the memory of the fable of the fox and the clam returned to me with such clarity and force that I was sure that it had been one of the stories I had memorized from the big book. A little shaken, I searched through my class photographs from grade school to find a picture of Matthew Barber, a boy who figured prominently in the story, as I had told it to Porky. He was not there. I was rattled. These discoveries were terribly disturbing because they demonstrated to me that the memories, fabrications, and unrealized desires from my past were in even more of a muddle than I had thought. If I couldn't separate them from one another, then I really don't now know any longer who I was. Fabrications from my personal history, adventures, experiences, and observations were invading the territory that had once been held pretty securely by memories from my life. Dazed and confused, I wandered absently to my workroom and stood at the window staring. After weeks of introspection, during which I spent much of each work day watching the jolly tinkers build a foundation for the cottage and move it into place, I came to understand why I had fabricated my memories of Matthew Barber and the fable of the fox and the clam. So that the reader may be spared the time and effort required to come to any similar understanding, I include here a summary of my conclusions. To understand the relationship between experience and imagination, one must be familiar with the paint-by-number canvases that were popular when I was a boy. These were canvases, or canvas-textured boards, on which were printed in pale blue the outlines of portions of a picture, each portion to be filled in with paint of a color indicated by a numeral within the outline. It was often not immediately obvious from looking at the pale blue outlines alone what some parts of the picture were supposed to depict. But when all the oddly shaped pieces had been filled with paint, one could see the whole picture if the painting had been done with care and the viewer stood a considerable distance away from it. It seems to me that my earliest experience with something creates in my mind a sketch like the pale blue sketches on those paint-by-number canvases. This sketch then becomes a framework for all my subsequent experiences with similar things. In most of my later life, I've been putting paint into the oddly shaped segments of a picture that I sketched very early. However, as time has gone on, I've run out of space on the canvas of experience, and in order to accommodate new experiences, I have had to paint over some of the older ones. The reader can, no doubt, imagine the results. The outline and the earliest experiences are soon obscured. The picture grows more distorted as time passes, at least in the sense that it departs more and more from the original outline. However, since the earlier experiences were obscured by the later ones, I relied on memory and on the assumed congruity of the later and earlier experiences to reconstruct the earlier ones, and that reliance has been the source of several illusions. Take, for example, my understanding of the big book. 
From the big book, right from the start, I got the idea, or the pale blue outline of an idea, that all the characters in the big book lived in the same place, a place that was as comfortable a home for talking squirrels as it was for dashing knights. Over the course of the years, this childish idea has persisted, although as a young man I came to regard it with the patronizing indulgence that so many of us, as soon as we become young men and women, feel for ourselves as children and our childish misconceptions. Felt embarrassed by the idea. As I did by many other ideas, it seemed like unbecoming baggage for a young man, the intellectual equivalence of hand-me-down cardboard suitcases plastered with stickers from one's parents' travels. But after I had finished being a youth, I rediscovered my affection for the idea and began painting away at it. I have now a fond affection for the idea that all the characters in books live in the same place, the big book place, and I've painted in so much of it over the years that I have a picture of a well-populated town, where, with Albertine on my arm, I sometimes walk along a shady street on a summer morning and pause to watch the talking squirrels gather nuts in Emma Bovary's front yard while Tom Sawyer paints her fence. At the same time, I seem to have been expanding and distorting the memory of the big book itself to include every story that I've ever enjoyed, or every story that has had a strong effect on me. Therefore, it isn't surprising that in the picture that I formed of the big book, I included the fable of the fox and the clan, although in fact it was never there. Nor is it surprising that in the mental pictures I had of my early grade school years, I painted in the pale and dour face of Matthew Barber, though I didn't meet Matthew until I entered high school. Signed, Peter Leroy, Smalls Island, July 28, 1983. Herewith, then, the beginning of the first chapter. One quiet morning, a Saturday, in the spring when I was three, while Dudley Beaker was sitting on his porch drinking a cup of coffee and reading the morning paper, the thought struck him that it was time I learned to read. Mr. Beaker was wearing a tan satin robe that my mother had made for him, though she had presented it first to my father, who never wore such things, as a birthday present. After a month or two had passed, and my father had not worn the robe, my mother asked why he didn't wear it on Saturday mornings when he sat in the kitchen drinking a cup of coffee and reading the paper. My father told her, sheepishly and gently, that he was really sorry that he hadn't worn it, but that a tanned satin robe wasn't really his style. It, he didn't wear that sort of thing. My mother admitted that he was right and said that it seemed a terrible shame to have a perfectly good robe go to waste and that it was too bad that she couldn't think of somebody else to give it to. My father struck himself on the head with the heel of his right hand and said that he had a perfect idea. They could give the robe to Dudley Beaker, whose birthday was coming up in just a week or two. At first, my mother didn't seem to think much of this idea. She said that Dudley's birthday wouldn't come up for months, 
But my father consulted the small book in which my mother listed birthdays and anniversaries and showed her that Mr. Beaker's birthday was, in fact, just around the corner. My mother declared that she must be losing her marbles like poor Mrs. Barber, the, window, the widow downtown, and scampered off to rewrap the robe using the original box, paper, and bow which she had saved on the topmost shelf of her closet in the back behind a hat box. When she gave the robe to Mr. Beaker, he said that it was just his style, just the sort of thing that he would enjoy wearing on a spring morning when he drank his coffee and read the morning paper on his porch. The idea that it was time for me to learn to read struck Mr. Beaker so powerfully that he put the paper aside at once, scrawled a note for Eliza, who was sleeping late, left his coffee, and went off to buy me a book. There was no bookstore in Babington at that time, but Lydia Barber, who ran a used furniture store on Main Street, liked to arrange the furniture in her shop as it might be arranged in a house. So she kept a good supply of props to lend verisimilitude to the arrangements, including antimacassars and doilies, knick-knacks and books, and these were also for sale. Among the books at Mrs. Barber's shop was a used, mildewed copy of the little folks' big book, an anthology of fables, maxims, poems, cautionary tales, and light-hearted stories for children. Mrs. Barber was the widow to whom my mother referred when she said that she must be losing her marbles, just as many other young Babington matrons did at that time. Whenever they thought of her, they took a deep breath and thanked their lucky stars that they were not in her shoes and they made a mental note to call her on the telephone or drop into the shop for a chat. Mrs. Barber had one child, a son named Matthew, who was about my age. It was Mrs. Barber's custom, while she tended the shop, to keep Matthew in the back room, which was full of dusty furniture, antimacassars and doilies, knick-knacks and books, or in good weather to let him play in the tiny yard behind the shop. When Matthew grew tired and cranky, Mrs. Barber would read to him from one of the books that she had for sale, and this habit gave her a reputation for having lost her marbles, since Matthew, although he could hear her perfectly well from the back room or the yard behind the shop, was invisible to the passers-by who glanced through the store window and saw the slight woman reading aloud, apparently to no one. Among the books that Mrs. Barber read from was the little folks' big book. However, Matthew didn't seem fond of the big book. If anything, listening to his mother read from it seemed to make him more tired and cranky. Mrs. Barber was not, therefore, unwilling to sell the book to Mr. Beaker, who decided that it was just the thing for teaching me to read. Mr. Beaker had Mrs. Barber wrap the book, and he drove directly to my parents' house. When he arrived, my mother was in the kitchen making breakfast. My father was in the bathroom shaving. I was sitting at the kitchen table eating a bowl of graham crackers and milk. My mother was wearing a terrycloth bathrobe and fuzzy slippers, my father was wearing blue boxer shorts. 
I was wearing a fresh pair of flannel pajamas with pictures of romping, drooling dogs all over them. Mr. Beaker suddenly appeared at the back door, rapping on the window, smiling. My mother was quite startled. Dudley, she cried, and began patting her hair into place. She opened the door and let him in. Dudley, she said again. She blushed and smiled and turned her cheek toward Mr. Beaker for a kiss. Thus, our very first reading from Volume 2 of The Personal History, Adventures, Experiences, and Observations of Peter Leroy, a serial novel by Eric Kraft, published beginning in 1983 by Applewood Books of Cambridge and Watertown. The engineer for this broadcast, Melanie Burzon, and this is Bill Kavnis with an invitation to join us every day, Sunday through Thursday, for Reading Aloud. Public Radio.